Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Liza Reed, is the research manager for low-carbon technology at the Niskanen Center. She's the author of a couple great recent papers that are all about electrical transmission, uh, helped talk me through this issue for some pieces I've been writing. I think it's really sort of fascinating, a little bit under-discussed aspect of the energy policy puzzle. So welcome to the show, Liza. Let's just start like really basic, banal. Like you go in the street, there's power lines, right? They bring electricity to your house. That's electrical transmission. What is interregional transmission? You call it banal. I call it one of the most important and interesting parts of the transmission infrastructure. So there's a lot of different ways that it can be defined, which I think is one of the challenges of talking about transmission is the precision of definition. But broadly speaking, interregional transmission is transmission that connects regions. And I don't say that glibly, right? I mean, this is important because how we define regions really impacts what that transmission can do. So the broadest definition of region is an interconnection. So the United States is divided up into three interconnections, the Eastern interconnection, the Western interconnection, and then ERCOT, which is contained within Texas. And what we mean by interconnection is that those are interconnected. There's many separate different utilities and lots of other subsets of electricity regulation and management within those interconnections, but they are considered essentially a synchronous region, right? That they are all on the same frequency. So you've got your house and you have some utility that you get your electricity from, but that utility connects to sort of other neighboring utilities, and it aggregates up to these three big interconnections. I remember I was in New York City one time, and something broke, like in Quebec, and our power went out. And that's because there's some long chain of connections. Exactly. And in fact, I say the United States is the Eastern and Western ERCOT, but the Eastern and Western interconnection connect up into Canada as well. So that's like the largest interregional scale is things that connect to that. And currently, those systems are largely connected through DC connections and pretty small capacity given the size of the systems and primarily back to back. So it's not even a physical transmission line. 
it is a DC station to another DC station that transfers the power between these two grids because they aren't on the same AC frequency. Well, they are, and that it's all the same hertz, but they're not, and that they're not synchronous, right? Their peaks and valleys don't line up. So that's the biggest regions. And then there's smaller regions within that. So the next sort of largest that people tend to talk about are called RTOs or ISOs, where RTO is a regional transmission organization and ISO is an independent system operator. You'll want to get an energy lawyer on here to discuss the differences, but for our purposes, they are the same thing. So PJM and Mid-Continent ISO, New England ISO, New York ISO, Cal ISO, right? These are examples of these. All of these RTOs and ISOs are smaller than an interconnection and quite smaller, right? I only defined three interconnections and all of these RTOs and ISOs, obviously multiple of them are are within these interconnections. So they are member organizations of utilities, essentially. And so each of these could be considered interregional depending on the definition that someone is working with. And all of them, transmission connecting all of these is important. Transmission across the interconnections is important and valuable. When I say important, I mean valuable for lowering costs, for increasing resilience and reliability, for increasing more low carbon energy sources into the grid. And then also true across these RTO and ISO boundaries and across states, right, where these boundaries are also separate from states. So let's think about like the most basic reason why these kind of institutions exist. I I assume at some point in the history of electricity, it was like much simpler than that, right? Like somebody had a facility that would generate electricity and they strung some wires and it served some places. And so you could get electricity from the source. And I think if I remember my urban history correctly, this is like people would locate factories near dams because like they could get their energy that way. But that's like a pretty crude way to power a society because like if anything breaks, then nobody can get electricity. You have all these points of failure, whereas if you can interconnect so that more than one electricity source can supply a given customer and vice versa, that just sort of works more more smoothly economically and sort of functionally. Exactly. One concept is that you're able to help your neighbor, but your neighbor can also help you. Another concept is this idea of redundancy, where they're not repetitious, right? They're not just wasteful, the same exact thing, right? They have a lot of overlap, which functionally makes the whole system more robust. And also you can like export as a business, right? Like my Quebec outage, it's like nobody lives in Canada, but there's like a lot of hydroelectric dams in Canada to the point that Canadians call electricity hydro. And one of the things they do is they sell electricity to America, which requires you to transport it over time because we don't want to move to northern Quebec to get their electricity. That's exactly right. So there's market expanding reasons that you make these connections as well. And both of these are true for how we think about interregional transmission, that there's redundancy and reliability benefits and there are significant market expanding benefits. The United States has diverse energy resources and geographically diverse, right? Both diverse in source, but also diverse in geography. And so the more that you can share those and share with our neighbors to the north, the less expensive electricity gets, right? The more expanded your markets are. 
And so in terms of expense, that's both you can sort of sell from surpluses and also you can respond dynamically to different conditions. So I'm in Texas now where we, I guess, are off on our own electrical grid island. And some of the problems that they had there the month before relates to this lack of interregional capacity, if I understand it correctly, that like Texas can't get extra electricity from elsewhere if they need it. So that is a factor in the February crisis, that when there was this demand on the grid, essentially heat demand, right, where the cold snap had a lot more electricity demand as a result coming from consumers. If you can get more electricity into the system, you can serve that demand. And if you cannot get more electricity or generation, I should say, into the system, then you can't serve that demand. And so you have to cut it off so that you can maintain the integrity of the grid itself. Now, there were other factors happening in Texas as well. As much as I am pro-transmission, transmission is not solving all of our problems, right? And there were issues, which I think many folks have seen by now, with natural gas pipelines freezing, right? Natural gas systems being down, right? That those were issues as well. But transmission very likely could have served some of that gap and lessened some of the severity of those outages. And that's right. I mean, that's the sort of basic resilience idea, right? Is like problems happen, right? And then the question is, is do we have any kind of way to root around them? I want to take a break and talk about why this is particularly important for clean energy. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Interregional transmission is particularly important for clean energy. There are so many studies that show that it's the least expensive way to meet our decarbonization goals, but also necessary but not sufficient. It's one of those. Transmission is in the category of necessary but not sufficient, that only local solutions are incredibly expensive because you're not getting that redundancy, right? If you have to do everything yourself, I mean, there's a few dimensions to this, right? You can't put the sunshine in the back of trucks 
and move it around, right? So with fossil fuels, we don't, like, the coal-fired power plants aren't right next to coal mines, necessarily. And we ship it on trains, right? There are these pipelines to move natural gas to gas-fired power plants um, wherever they exist. Oil, obviously, you can fill up your car at different kinds of stations. So we move the product, the commodity. And then we also do transmit the electricity, but a lot of the distance is being done by moving a physical commodity. And you can't do that with renewable energy resources. You have to move the electricity. So the interregional transmission lets you move that electricity to where you need to move it. We could probably get into a semantic debate about whether that is still moving a commodity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure. The point is, you're not going to move the wind, right? You're not going to move the wind and you're not going to move the sun. And like where the wind as it happens is like not where people live, right? Often the highest capacity wind is sort of across the Great Plains tends to be in sort of more rural, more flat regions, right? Just off the mountains. Also, when the wind happens is also really interesting, right? It's more in the sort of dusk hours is when the wind is higher. It's a nice complement to solar in that sense. But you're right. We don't, for the most part, live near the wind. Right. So then that's the other factor, right? One is the population centers are not where the wind resources are. Solar, a little bit of a different match issue. But also there's this intermittency, right? So the sun doesn't shine at night. The wind blows hardest at certain times of day. And so you were talking about complementarity. And so like, how does that play in? So first, we can't forget offshore wind, because I would hate for offshore wind advocates to come at me for saying we don't have wind near where we live. There's a lot of offshore wind availability and capacity along load centers on either coast. But yes, so they are complements to each other. But there is an intermittency issue, right? And that when the sun is strongest, when the wind is strongest, you can predict, but you can't guarantee, right? And so while wind and solar are complements to each other, we also need storage and transmission and other sources like hydropower, like nuclear, right? Like natural gas with carbon capture, right? That can ensure the stability of the supply. But essentially, we're envisioning a very dynamic kind of system there, right? Where like tapping the storage is relatively expensive and the sun's shining sometimes, the wind's going sometimes, you're spinning up the natural gas plants, you know, maybe when you need to. And so it's like a lot of electrons on the go. I mean, which is always how it works, but to a greater extent than we're talking about with conventional power. Well, right. And when you're diversifying resources, I mean, that's just the reality, right, of diversifying anything, right? It's the same with diversifying an investment portfolio is that there's just more moving, right? There's more pieces that you are keeping track of. Absolutely. But one of the benefits of transmission is that once it gets on that line, right, you're now moving it, right? If you can consolidate some of this power onto a high capacity transmission line, for example, you've consolidated some of those problems in some of those geographies, right? Where again, if you're looking at all local, right, all of these problems get multiplied, possibly exponentially, right? If you think about the problem-solving aspect of it, as opposed to transmission where you can consolidate and move between regions easily. If you look around like an ignorant person like me, if you drive around, it seems like there's a lot of power lines kind of everywhere. Things seem connected to each other. But what are we talking about? 
physically? Like what kinds of things are actually needed to increase the capacity to do that kind of long range transmission? This is a great question. When we talk about things being connected physically, that's the interconnection, right? It is all physically connected, but getting power to move from one location to another location is actually pretty difficult. And there's a couple of reasons it's difficult, but one of those reasons is losses, right? So interregional transmission is often discussed and envisioned as high power, right? So typically high voltage, but also high current. And so you're looking at 400 kilovolts DC you know, 500, 700 kilovolts AC, where this high kilovoltage lets you transmit more power with lower losses, right? So where we're all connected now, we're all connected on pretty low kilovolts. So if you try to go pretty far, you just run out, right? You can't get there from here. It just, you know, it looks like magic, right? There's like wires around and you flip the switch and the lights turn on. But you're saying actually you lose electricity as it runs along those wires. And so if you take like the normal wire and you just make them go a really, really long distance, that's not going to work. And in fact, this is why we have an AC system. Because when the war of the currents was ongoing between Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla, the technology didn't exist to transform DC voltage to a higher voltage. So Edison's technology could only operate on the voltage that he was generating power. And so he couldn't transmit at far distances. Whereas alternating current can take advantage of electric and magnetic fields and through a transformer, literally just wrapping wires, you can transform that AC voltage higher. There's the magic. The magic is in the AC transformer. I think they're absolutely incredible. And that's how you get it further distances, right? You up that voltage so you can send it farther. Okay. And so even though we have these big interconnections, essentially to increase the amount of power that we're sending over long distances, we need to build some new kinds of stuff. Right. Increase the amount and actually just create the ability, right? We don't currently have a lot of this high voltage that's sort of giving this point-to-point ability to transfer power. Um, So it's not just about capacity. It's about adding that capability as well. Have people seen this stuff? Like, it looks different from the kind of regular power lines that you would see along a country road. It's like the really big ones that you sometimes see, like cutting a swath through the landscape somewhere. I mean, I think people have seen it. I think that's why people are opposed to it. I think they've seen it. I mean, they are very large. At least they get a lot larger in the AC case. If you're looking at direct current, which is actually what one of the papers that you were referencing that I published is about, you know, with direct current, your towers don't have to be as big. With AC, to get the same capacity, your towers often have to be, for safety reasons, a lot higher, and your right-of-way has to be cleared a lot wider. Yeah, I mean, this is substantial infrastructure comparable to interstate highways and other kinds of things like that. And so what's the issue with building. I mean, is it just, well, people say it looks ugly. I mean, with anything, it's hard to build. In America, are we really just looking at a kind of, not in my backyard, you know, I'm all for electricity transmission, but like, please don't screw up my view. This is a great question. And I think our understanding of what the barriers and opportunities are for transmission development is continuing to evolve. As these conversations get pushed forward, these questions of, is it just NIMBY, get broadened to understand what are all of the pieces that come into play. And I 
would posit that it is not just NIMBY, right? There's a lot of challenges here. A number of them are regulatory. A number of them are, as you said, there's this historical basis for why we have the system we have now, but that historical basis is not well-structured for interregional transmission, right? If you start local and slowly start finding ways to aggregate, each one of those levels of aggregation requires discussion of what the economic impacts are, what the business impacts are, right? Do you need to restructure utilities? Do you need to restructure relationships? Who should be paying? So, I mean, let's talk about the regulatory landscape is very fragmented. It's actually more fragmented than I realized. I spent my whole life in the urban Northeast, where we have, I guess, state utility regulators and then privately owned utilities. Apparently, in large parts of America, it doesn't work like that. And there's publicly owned power companies, but it's basically a state function regulating electrical grids. So there's like an inherent problem anytime you do anything that crosses state lines when state regulators oversee it. So yeah, there's a lot of state oversight in certain parts of transmission building. And the only reason I emphasize the certain parts is that what makes it even more complex, because if states had all control over everything, right, then you also have a different conversation that you're having, right? But when it's a bit balkanized, if everybody has a different onus of control, right, then there's just that many more people who are agreeing and disagreeing on how to move forward, right? And what the barriers are, right? Because it's not me, it's you. <laughs> you're the problem. <laughs> sure. And so I can talk a little bit about the states. So there's state regulators. And in many states, one of the roles that state regulators play is granting permission for any transmission line to be built in that state. Whether it is going to be paid for by their ratepayers or not, whether it is going to be built by their utilities or built by a private company, anything that is considered transmission must be approved by the state regulators. It's often a public utility commission. Sometimes it's a power siting board. Every state, of course, has something a little different because God forbid anything be the same. So that's a huge regulatory aspect of building transmission is getting permission to build a line in a state. And each state has rules about what can be built and why, what the regulators can consider for approving these lines. And this is where interregional can run into trouble. So I'm sure you can imagine that an interstate line is going to have different benefits for different places along that line. And different both categorically but if you were going to put an economic value on them, often different economically as well. And so a number of state regulators interpret their authority that they can only approve lines if the primary benefit is to the state. And that might not be the case, right? Particularly with depending on how you're defining benefit and how you're quantifying these things, right? If one state is an exporter and the other state is an importer, who's the primary beneficiary? Is it the state that's selling the power? Is it the state that's buying the power. And these are pretty complex discussions. And what ends up happening often is that these lines just don't move forward. Right. So, I mean, if I am a state with a lot of generating potential and a line that lets me export that power elsewhere, that has economic value to the state, obviously, but not necessarily value to the state's ratepayers. So if the way you're evaluating it is, does this make electricity cheaper for my constituents? It doesn't really make it cheaper to let you export wind power from South Dakota, 
But it might be good for South Dakota to be able to develop this industry. Conversely, right, the state that's importing it, it could be good for the ratepayers there. It could be good for sustainability goals, but it could be bad for local power producers, right? I mean, it depends whose interest you're considering. And if you need to coordinate across multiple regulators, it's unlikely that you're going to get a single definition of whose benefits count that's going to apply to people on both sides of a transaction like that. That's exactly right. So this is one of the reasons that aggregation exists or one of the benefits of aggregation as far as RTOs and ISOs is when transmission planning happens within an RTO or ISO region, there's an agreed upon definition of what we're counting in this planning, right? But then if you want to cross between RTOs and ISOs, we're back to the same challenge of what are the benefits, right? And do we agree on how we're proceeding with this transmission planning? But then even if you have this agreement at the RTO and ISO level, at this one level of regional level, that still might not match with a state regulator's definition. And so this transmission planning process might result in a line that, quote unquote, should be built, but the state might not agree, right, with that analysis that that line should be built. Before my current sojourn in Texas, I was in Maine. All the greatest hits for transmission. (laughs) Yeah, they're having this huge political fight, which, I mean, trying to give a fair accounting of everyone's point of view on this, it mainly is bringing Canadian electricity to Massachusetts is sort of like the main point of it. It's going to be paid for by Massachusetts, but it is physically in Maine. And so one set of perspectives on it is this is amazing. We get this big construction project, lots of jobs, all this good stuff, and the taxpayers in Massachusetts are paying for it. So like, that's awesome. And another point of view is, eh, they're putting this big, ugly thing through the forest, and we're not even the ones using the electricity. And another point of view is, They're building this and we're not even the ones who are selling the electricity, right? Which I think is important to raise, right? Is that often these discussions get talked about like they're NIMBYs and they're just landowner and community interests, but they are not. And there are incumbent utility and generator interests as well. So you have the oil companies in this weird alliance with the forest lovers, essentially to say they don't want this. It looks like it's going to get built in the end. But there has been a lot of ill will. It has taken a lot of time. And it brings home that there isn't like an unequivocal canonical process whereby you would do something like this, right? Like it's a huge set of bespoke political fights. Uh, This is one relatively small state in which actually both the Democratic governor and her Republican predecessor agreed on favoring this project. And it was still like a death match to go do it. And fairly innocuous, too. I mean, we're talking about it's like nobody lives in northwestern Maine and like it's clean energy, like it's all super feel good. And nonetheless, like it didn't make me think you would build a lot of comparable projects, I'll just say going forward. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge. And macro and micro tend to mean something specific in transmission, but I mean it more in the broad sense that the macro concepts of transmission, I think, are very easy to understand and get behind. But then the micro of an individual project, if you can't move any of them through, then you can't get any of the macro benefits. And this process that you mentioned is, I think, a huge problem, right? That there isn't a clear, even two clear ways, even three clear ways, right? In every subset of these regions that we've defined, it's a different 
process that you've got to figure out as a developer and navigate as a developer, but also figure out and navigate as a community member as well. All right, let's take a break here for a second. I want to come back to one of these points. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so a few weeks ago, you were telling me offline about an effort to kind of fix this that was made way back in, I think it was 2005 energy bill. So what was that and why didn't it work? So the Energy Policy Act of 2005 established a new function, a new federal authority for transmission line siting. And it's a dual authority between the Department of Energy and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, where the Department of Energy is tasked to do a study every three years of specifically economic congestion, right? So where there's a market opportunity here, right, where there's too high prices, and identify areas where there is electric economic congestion as national interest electric transmission corridors, or NIETCs. After the Department of Energy declares these NIETCs, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission now has backstop siting authority in those corridors. What does backstop mean? So there is still this state process that we've been discussing is the first process, right? So a developer would of a transmission line would go to the state siting commissions, the public utility commissions, the siting boards, and propose their line. And if their line falls in a natural interest electric transmission corridor and isn't approved by the states, then the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has this backstop authority to essentially overrule, right? To consider it themselves and say, no, actually, this line is important because it is in the national interest, right? So the attempt here is to recognize that states are often constrained to only considering the state interest. And so the federal government considering the national interest. And if a line is a national interest, then the federal government should cite it. So you could say, I don't know, Maine. It's like, we need this power in Southern New England urban centers. It's our environmental goals, our diplomacy with Canada. Like we're giving it the thumbs up and your little Maine concerns are not going to be allowed to trump them. And that's how we do things. I mean, sometimes in America, right? It's a federal system and states have a lot of autonomy, but we also 
decides certain things are of national interest. And so that would be the vision. It sounds great, but I assume we wouldn't be doing this episode if a 2005 law had solved the problem. So I intentionally misspoke because what I said was if the states deny it, but that is actually not what the law specifically says or how the law has been interpreted and hence the rep. During discussion, there's an argument that congressional intent was that it should be this denial, right? That if a state says no, the federal government can override it. But what the Energy Act language says is delays more than a year. The court interpretation of that is that it's a delay only. So if a state says no, that is a determination. And so the federal government cannot override a no. It can only override a no decision. So in theory, this could speed decisions. But if a state just says no, then this line can't get built, which is exactly what has happened. And this is where our textualists in judiciary have maybe operated at odds with, I don't know, good sense. I think it's pretty clear. I mean, you know, you can have a view about how judges ought to do things and how the law ought to work. But like the goal here was to create a system where the federal government would do preemptions and we would build more interregional transmission. And the insistence on construing the words that narrowly, that strictly, has been that we have not, in fact, had federal preemption. And we haven't had this kind of express track for national interest projects. And so now, I guess what the textualists would say is, well, you should just pass another law then. In the real world, Congress, you know, like once in a blue moon, passes a law on a given subject, uh, but we are now hoping for some new legislation. So that's a great analysis. And I've papered over some of the history of NIETCs, and folks are welcome to follow up with me and many others on more details of the issues with the early implementation of them. But the conclusion is right. We aren't getting it. This isn't functional to get these interstate or interregional or, or really any of these national interest lines built. There is legislation in discussion that could address some of these issues. And one of those pieces of legislation was recently discussed at the Energy and National Resources Senate Committee. And that is about changing this backstop authority, right? So there's one approach that says, let's just, quote unquote, fix it, as you said, right? If there's a language issue with the law, let's just update that language issue. So it says, in fact, it is deny or delay. Right, so that is one of the proposals, and in fact, that is what came out of Senate ENR was this language on adding this denial or delay and adding other considerations. Right, that it isn't just economic congestion that's in the national interest, but there are lots of things that are in the national interest when it comes to electricity transmission, and there are lots of things that the Department of Energy should be allowed to consider in, in ways that they should approach it. And so, part of that—that that is the difference between a uh, 2021 view of our energy needs and a um, like Dick Cheney energy bill view of our energy needs. We were talking before about you know meeting deep decarbonization goals requires interregional transmission, at least to do it in a cost-effective kind of way. And so, we want those ecological considerations to also be on the table because the point is, it's the most economically practical way to achieve the decarbonization goals. But you need those goals to be on the table as part of the analysis. Otherwise, it's not cheaper than not building the transmission lines. So you got to get that in there or it's not going to work. Right. It's economic, it's environmental, it's resilience, it's reliability. There's an energy security argument to be made here, too. There's a whole technology argument. I mean, someday we'll have to talk about AC versus DC. I've only barely teased it. 
This is Tesla versus Edison, early 20th century inventor grudge match. Back then it was. Back then it was, but we've got a new grudge match, right? We've got new technology that gives a lot more kind of opportunity for DC. Very new technology, 25 years old, which is very new in the electricity world. That's too much for me. Um, okay, so... <laughs> right. But I did want to make sure that I mentioned that this updating backstop is also not the only solution. So in that same hearing, Senator Hickenlooper introduced an amendment, which he then withdrew prior to vote, but that amendment looks at this completely differently. And this is what you had been talking about in a previous newsletter, right, is this bright line approach that says, well, instead of doing a study and then declaring these corridors and then waiting a year, are there some things that are just the national interest, period, right? Are high capacity interstate lines simply in the national interest, right? And so should that be a federal authority? So that's another piece in discussion. And then there's a whole other aspect of the Energy Policy Act of 2005 that also allows the federal government to enter into private-public partnership with a developer, which would, in theory, then give the federal government citing authority because it is now considered a federal line by the financing background of it. So beyond this kind of regulatory element, how do you actually get the land, get the right of way to build some like really big, straight power line? How does that work? For the most part, you are negotiating with landowners. I mean, and I would defer to developers who have actually done this process, but that's primarily what the preferred path is, right? So that when the siting and permitting comes up, that gives you the opportunity to avoid trying to go through eminent domain if you can come to a private agreement with a private landowner or with the state or whoever's land you're going through. And a lot of this sort of goes on, I guess, fairly rural areas where people own like big stretches of land. Otherwise, it wouldn't be like super practical. So what are the prospects of this, right? I mean, is this the kind of thing that has some major interest group opposition, you know, like a big utility commission is trying to stymie change here? Or is it like this is a kind of technical question and it's hard to get things on the congressional agenda? I mean, there's a lot of interest issues sort of at play here with all of the aspects of transmission. There's a couple of challenges to citing, but one of the opponents is often state regulators, because their perspective is that this is their authority, right? And, and so to take some of that authority is, I mean, it's taking it, right? It is, no, nobody likes that. <laughs> right. They don't want to give it up. They think they're doing a great job and they shouldn't lose it, which is always an issue in life. Before I let you go, I think we should talk a little bit about financing of something like this, because I assume fairly expensive to build a giant electrical line across regions. And I, I assume there's some country somewhere where there's like a single national utility, and then it would go without saying that any kind of project is part of that. But we're talking about sending power from one set of utilities to another set of utilities. So that's actually going to raise the question of what's the business model for that? Right. Who pays? I think you can probably guess one of those countries that has a single state. It might be called a state grid, for example, and it might cover an entire state of an entire country uh, where they build a whole lot of transmission, in fact. What's that? 
It's China. Oh, <laughs> China. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. China, big country, one big, obviously a lot of countries are small, but China's big, so it can be done. But that seems unlikely as a solution for the United States. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say that that is anyone's goal. Right? I don't <laughs> at all. I will explicitly say that that is no one's goal. But so how do you make the paying work in a federated system? These are great questions, Matt. <laughs> it's hard. And I don't say that lightly. This is currently something in front of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to talk about, right? FERC is looking at cost allocation, right? They've put out orders before about how utilities should come together and determine cost allocation and who should pay. But it's not a sort of clear, explicit formula, right, that everyone is agreeing on and moving forward with. And that's exactly where these things come into challenges. If you are building it, among utilities. Another option is called merchant transmission, where you have private investors building lines, and then they can essentially finance those lines through selling that power in the market, right? Either in an energy market or through power purchase agreements or some other different elaborate financial mechanisms. So then that would like be my business, just like I could own boats and my businesses, people pay me to ship stuff. I could own a power line and my whole business is a utility wants to tap into the power that's on the other end. So they pay me and I finance it on that basis. Yeah, that's exactly right. But these are still hard to do. There are other barriers for a merchant line and how they can get connected into the system. Again, the cost allocation is a fascinating question. I don't know that we have time to talk about postage stamp versus license plate rates, but I recently learned about these two different models of how we think about paying. Let's teach people some jargon. So a postage stamp rate is a universal rate. It's sort of like a flat same rate, right? Everybody is paying the postage stamp rate. A license plate rate is a regional rate. I think that's where the metaphor comes from, right? Is, is the regional boundary of a license plate versus the nationwide boundary of a postage stamp, where the license plate rate is where you pay based on a proportion of your use in that region. And that's why you have to bound it, because figuring out what everybody's fraction of a national energy grid use is, is impractical and intractable. But if you create these license plate regions, right, and then charge people, right, then your cost allocation is some proportion based on how much of your use is the total use. If any advocates, anyone is out there, I'm just like, I'm begging you, call this a national versus regional system. It's going to be so much clearer to everybody. Yes, it is true that the post office serves a national constituency, whereas the DMV serves uh, state-based ones. But I don't think that is the thing that comes to mind when people are wondering about what's the difference between a postage stamp and a license plate. So please... Please, everybody, there is uh, a lot of sort of details to figure out. I mean, I do think the sort of theme here, right, is that to the extent that you can establish a process that is clear, that helps a lot, right? I mean, even if there are reasonable room for disagreement as to exactly what the rules should be, it's just much easier if you, like, pick one, right? Like, who do you go to for the permitting? What is the standard they apply? How does the rate setting work, right? Then you can look at it as a business person. You can see what pencils out and what doesn't. Whereas now we have a system that is uh, fraught with uncertainty, which I think political people don't always appreciate how bad it is 
for a business model to have it be just like not clear what the rules are. That really drives costs up of financing anything at all versus a system where you can predict reasonably well what will and won't get a green light. Yep, that's exactly right. And one of the barriers to interregional transmission is that in many ways, the process is clear for interregional transmission, which is that you can't build it so you don't build it. I'm sort of serious there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, okay. Thank you so much for your time here. Liza Reed, uh, Niskanen Center. There's a couple of great stuff up on the website under your name on on Niskanen. More coming out. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, uh, to our producer, Eric Janakis. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.